And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is the travel show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. Uh, I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And on that subject, we would love to have you be part of the conversation. In the past, we've had people come on with their travel questions. We've even found experts to talk about different places in the world or different types of travel this way. So you can email me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. As well, this is the time in the show where we remind you that we're not just here on radio or on podcast. We're also at fromers.com. We're working away. We're busy beavers there, putting up six, seven articles per day because there actually is a lot to cover in the world of travel. But a lot of those articles have to do with cuisine. They have to do with culture. Uh, they have to do with what the government is doing. In short, it's really interesting stuff. So we hope you'll visit us at fromers.com and pick up Fromer guidebooks wherever uh, books are sold. Now, we know that this is a time of less travel than usual. So as I've said in previous weeks, we're doing the show a little bit differently. Instead of having several guests to talk about the how-tos of travel, we're looking at travel from a more holistic uh, viewpoint. And so we are having great travelers and travel writers as our guests. That category certainly includes our next guest. He's His name is Seth Kugel. If you're a fan of the New York Times frugal traveler column, you know him from that. He was the frugal traveler for several years. He also has a terrific book out called Rediscovering Travel, a guide for the globally curious. Hey, Seth, welcome to the Travel Show. Hey, Pauline. Great to be here. Great to talk to you both. Well, so we're going to talk in a little while about how you got the gig as the frugal traveler, what yeah. doing that was like. But you were a major traveler before that, in that you did something a lot of us dream of. You moved to another country. Is that correct? It is correct, although I waited a long time before <laughs> I did it. I, I, I'm not a, uh, I guess I'm not a man of quick action. I've been thinking about moving to another country since I was in college and then out of college. And then finally, I sucked it up and moved to Brazil uh, when I was uh, 38 years old, uh, wow. I waited that long. I can't believe I did it. I did wait that long. I mean, if I could do it all over again, I would certainly act faster. I was a journalist in New York. I was not a full-time travel writer yet. Um, and I just kept putting off trying to become a freelancer in another country because it's a little bit of a risk. Sure. It's very challenging to live in another country. It is much harder and much better than traveling there for a short period of time. But, um, you know, I'm a, I was a little risk averse, but I'm so happy that I did it. I had a great two years there. But let me, let me ask you, you say it's much harder. Is that because of the language barrier or did you speak Portuguese? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a language learner. I love learning other languages. So I'm pretty good. I, I really only do the easy ones, the romance languages. Uh, so I, I'm pretty good at, I took French in school and I'm okay at that. I worked in Spanish throughout my twenties in New York, which as we know is a place where you can travel without traveling. I worked with a lot of Dominican and Puerto Rican and Ecuadorian and Colombian communities. Uh, and then I did, oh, I did take Portuguese classes. So again, risk averse. I didn't really want to go without having a, a base in the language. Uh, but also because I was going as a journalist and in Latin America, journalists are pretty much expected to speak the language, uh, once they get there. Uh, there's, there's not that much time to learn. Right. Uh, so I, I did go ahead and, and learn it, but I, I really, you know, people are always asking you, know, how did you get so good at it without living there? And uh, the answer to that is very simple. It's just time and dedication. I, yeah. I uh, for about two years before I moved to uh, Brazil, I was taking uh, one-on-one classes, which are often very cheap uh, when you have immigrants from that country huh. in your city, which is the case in New York. Yeah. Um, and I'll just say it frankly, most of them do not have permission to work in the United States. Hmm. So they're trying to make a living at the same time they're on a student visa or something right. like that. So it's, it's, it's cheap. Um, uh, as are so many jobs held by immigrants, yeah. they, they don't make that much money. But uh, also, I listened to the radio huh. uh, over the internet for an hour every morning. So you have to imagine this. It, it's 19, uh, what year is it? No, it's 2008, and, 2007, and I'm living in Manhattan. And I found, this is a long time ago on the internet, yeah. but I found an app which would has an alarm clock, which would then open up any radio station in the world, like a clock radio. And wow. I had it open up a Rio de Janeiro radio station. I didn't want a music station. I'm not a big believer in learning uh, foreign languages through music. Uh, if you listen to what lyrics in English of many songs, they're not really very comprehensible to begin with. So I wanted a talk radio, like an AM talk radio kind of a station. And I found one and I listened for two years, every morning. Wow. Wow. It was very strange. But it was very effective. And of course, at the beginning, I couldn't understand that much. And yeah. by the end, uh, I, I understand it quote quite well. And a couple of years later, the host of the show, when he heard me talking about how I'd learned Portuguese through him, wanted to have got in touch with me to have me on the show. Oh, that's very cool. So <laughs> you said fun. language, even if somebody doesn't, you say it's better to travel that way, to go and get to know a place really in depth. Why, why do you think that? Um, you know, I'm, I just, uh, I'm very against, for example, a uh, bucket list where you say, I need to go to this place and see it for a second and then say I was there. Right. Um, just it, length of travel is, is really, um, the longer you're in a place, uh, the, the more you know about the place or can learn about it before you go, the more you can stay and meet people, really, whether you speak the language or not, uh, because English is so widely spoken around a lot of the world today. Sure. Um, you're just better off. It's also better environmentally, of course, to stay longer in right, one place than course. to travel to a lot of different places. There's a whole lot of reasons. And I, uh, you've probably heard me talk about this before. It's certainly in the book. But I really have a bone to pick with people who count how many countries they've been to as the quality of their you know, experience as a traveler. Uh, right. I just don't see it that way. I, I'd much rather hang out with someone who lived in China for five years than has been to 100 countries for a day each. Well, 
We are speaking to Seth Kugel. Uh, if you're tuning in now, he was the frugal traveler for the New York Times. He also has a terrific book out called Rediscovering Travel, A Guide for the Globally Curious. Since not all of us will have the p- pleasure, the privilege of living in Brazil, right. what was it like living there? What, how, how does it differ from living in the United States? Oh, I mean, I think there, first of all, uh, Brazil has a lot of wonderful things about it and a lot of difficult things about it. But I think that's true of any country. And I'm happy to talk about the specifics. But in general, what's great just in general about living in another country is, and we get this when we travel too, but you begin to realize things aren't the way, you think that things in your own country are just the way things are. And then suddenly it's not the way things are. Um, You know, people... I mean, one thing I noticed when I, this is a tiny little weird social detail, but when I moved to Brazil and looked for an apartment in Sao Paulo, and believe me, looking for an apartment in a foreign country is a nightmare. Hmm. But uh, I I noticed that all of the apartments have these little rooms with little bathrooms attached uh, to them. And those were the servants' quarters. So even in a middle-class area, Apartments were built with uh, basically servants' quarters, which was so strange to me. Uh, these were buildings that were a few decades old, and not everyone has live-in servants anymore. But it was just a very interesting introduction to Brazilian society. And, and each building would have two elevators, and one would be the service elevator, and one would be the regular elevator. We have that a little bit in New York in some places. Yeah. Uh, but the, the elevators are exactly the same. But you could only go into, you know, the service staff had to go into one. Yeah, so that's not a positive thing about Brazil, of course, but it's just an example of something really interesting. It's just not what you would expect. Like, you wouldn't get in an elevator with a housekeeper. I mean, that seems crazy to to us, I think. Uh, But I I should say before anyone who's from Brazil is listening, there is also a number of incredibly wonderful things about Brazil, like how good they are at self-service pay-by-weight buffets. Oh, I love those. Yeah. (laughs) Which to me, we don't really, the only thing we have in New York that's like that is these sort of what we call delis with these kind of steam tables, which people tend to steer clear of most of the time. I don't even know how they sell enough to stay in business. I I think they sell enough, but they tend to be I I mean, of course they sell enough or they wouldn't be there. But but I guess what we're talking about is a a regular restaurant, the restaurant atmosphere, but the way you get your food is on these steam tables. And I came in thinking, this is disgusting, steam tables. You know, that reminds me of a New York deli. But in fact, these are really nice restaurants, and it's a really great way to eat because you don't need to order a main dish and a salad separately. You just have a smaller amount of the main dish and a smaller amount of the salad. And it sounds like a stupid little detail, but I, so it's one of the things I miss the most about Brazil and one of the things that may be the happiest about a Brazilian pay-by-weight restaurant that opened up four blocks from my apartment in New York City (laughs) a few years ago. Oh, how great. We are talking with Seth Kugel. That name may sound familiar to all our avid travelers out there because he was the frugal traveler for the New York Times for quite some time. He also has a terrific book out called Rediscovering Travel, a a guide for the globally curious. (laughs) We are going to take a quick break now, but we're going to talk to Seth next about how he became the frugal traveler and what that involved. So don't turn that dial.
Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer. My dad is on the line and also on the line from Queens, New York, where he lives uh, part of the time, part of the time at Brazil, is Seth Kugel. He is or was the frugal traveler for the New York Times for several years. He also has a wonderful book out called Rediscovering Travel, A Guide for the Globally Curious. Now, Seth, how'd you get the gig as the as the frugal traveler? How does that oh, work? Oh, Pauline, this is the most disappointing story you're ever going to hear, <laughs> I think. Uh, you know, I, I can sum this up incredibly quickly. Uh, it's a good lesson for anyone that wants any job in any career in any aspect of life. Uh, I basically knew the guy that became the travel editor of the New York Times, and he trusted me and loved my work. Uh, that's the very short version of it. Uh, I was living in Brazil, and uh, I was writing part-time for this guy. I I was not – I had done a a two-year column about New York, but it wasn't really a travel column. It was about New York. I was, like, writing for the travel section but not going anywhere. Then I moved to Brazil, and so he trusted me. He knew my work. He knew I met my deadlines. He knew I was a good writer. And so when the guy before me, Matt Gross, um, uh, decided he couldn't do it anymore with his baby, or maybe his wife decided that for him, right. uh, he, uh, this guy, Stuart Emmerich, who a great editor, uh, said to me, hey, you want to be the frugal traveler? And um, I just, I think it's a great lesson because I was certainly not the world's most accomplished travel writer. There are probably a thousand or a million people who would have liked to take this job. Um, but it just goes to show that like um, being a, 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 a deadline meeting dependable person and make having the right contacts and doing the right networking can get you a long way. There are, I would say a thousand people out there who are our colleagues who would have been just as good at being frugal traveler as I was, but you know, you got to be in the right place at the right time and yeah. it takes some work to get to the right place at the right time. I can't remember who said that, that 50% of success is just showing up anyway. Mm-hmm. So you became the frugal traveler. That meant you had to travel for very little money to a lot of places. Does the New York Times assign your budget and assign where you're going, or did you have to come up with that? Well, that is a a complicated question. Uh, The answer is that the first year I did it, uh, I was actually living in Brazil, so we decided that my first uh, 12 weeks would be returning from Brazil to New York uh, in every way but uh, airplane. Uh, very, uh, huh. I did 90% of that route by bus and boat and train and wow. uh, maybe a few rental cars in there. Uh, and we had to come up with a budget. And the thing we came up with, and I, I don't know how the... So wait, wait hold on. Just, just so I understand that. So yeah. your first 12 weeks, you spent that 12 weeks traveling by land from Brazil yeah. back to the United States, and you wrote articles about the places you saw along the way and how you did yeah. it? Wow. I wrote one, one main some, article. On, before we go to that, sure, aren't there sure. some really dangerous areas, uh, borders you'd have to yeah. cross? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think the only absolutely dangerous place is uh, the Darien Gap between Colombia and uh, Panama or huh. on the border of Colombia and Panama. And that is one of the areas I flew. I think there were two flights involved. Huh. So one was a flight uh, from Bogota to, I can't remember which country in in uh, Central America I visited. For, I think it was to Panama, actually. Huh. Uh, and then another one was there was just a stretch of Brazil 
that was just would have taken way such a huge country. Sure. I just kind of lopped off a chunk uh, that would have been, you know, like a 50 hour bus ride. I just went in a three hour flight and just did it. Um, but besides that, yeah, it, it's not, you know, one of the things about travel uh, is that you have to know what your risk tolerance is. And for me, uh, taking a 36 hour bus ride from the Brazilian border to La Paz, Bolivia, uh, was within my risk tolerance. Now, once I got on the bus and I saw that we're winding around these mountain passes oh. with, with no guardrail, uh, I began to think maybe I had got that piece wrong. Uh, and it turns out that, that the transportation, I would learn later, is by far the most common place for travelers to be injured or even lose their lives when they're traveling. So um, maybe I wouldn't have done that if I had to dig in. On the other hand, I spent 36 hours sitting next to a co coca leaf salesman. Wow. Which, of course, is a leaf that you make cocaine out of. Yeah. But in Bolivia, that's a legal business because they use it a lot. They chew the leaves, and it's not just used for illegal drugs. So I learned a lot about the coca leaf uh, business <laughs> in 36 hours. Uh, so, you know, um, but yes, uh, it wasn't 100% safe. Uh, but I was, you know, I never found myself, I don't think, in any grave danger. For anybody tuning in, we're speaking with Seth Kugel, who was the frugal traveler for a couple of years for the New York Times. He also has a great book out called Rediscovering Travel, a guide for the globally curious. And Seth, you were saying the main article that you wrote in your first 12 weeks as the frugal yeah. traveler, during which you traveled from Brazil to New York City, mostly by yeah. land, which yeah. boggles my mind. Uh, <laughs> what was the main article? Well, we did one article. I did basically one article per week, which was the main article of the week, which was generally I had a specific destination in mind, a specific city, or my boat trip in the Amazon, or riding the Amtrak through the South and in the United States when I when I made it to the States. And then we did one article, which was my budget. So I would write every week about, uh, and then I had an overall budget. I, I can't remember exactly what it was per day, $25 or $50. I can't really remember. Wow. But we would, I would write about how I was doing because I, I, I knew I needed to get ahead on my budget before I got to the United States because you can't, it's what you can travel on in Bolivia and what you can travel on in the U.S. is completely different. So sure. we did it that way. And then I did a bunch of other little posts and just, um, you know, along the way when something curious would happen, like I so, found a really awesome empanada or something like that. <laughs> so you had an overall budget for the entire trip, so you could spend yeah. more in South America than you did in the United States. Yeah, yeah, well, well, I could spend, I could have a better time in South America. And I tried to <laughs> save money there so that when I got to the United States, I had enough money to stay at a youth hostel or something like that. But, but um, yeah, and actually, in fact, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, I actually, we actually, once that trip was over, I met with the editor by that time was, was not Stuart. He had gone, moved on. And we decided that I would have a budget of, I can't remember exactly. It was like $20,000 a year or $25,000 a year for travel. It was some sort of random amount that I guess had to do with their, their budget. Interesting. Wait, we have I, to, hold on, Seth. We're oh. going to leave it at that dollar amount, but we'll get back. We're going to talk more with Seth Kugel about being the, tra the frugal traveler, sticking within his budget and getting to travel the world. We'll be right back.
All right, we're back with the Fromer Travel Show. If you've been tuning in, you know that we have on the line Seth Kugel. He is uh, the author of a really terrific book of travel essays called Rediscovering Travel. He also was the frugal traveler for many years. So he, we've been talking about that. He would get a yearly budget and then would have to plan trips and uh, to destinations within that budget. What was the most difficult place you went uh, cheaply? Uh, obviously, Scandinavia. And oh, this was, uh, what had happened was uh, I had actually, every summer, once we did that first big trip from Brazil to the U.S., once I did, I decided I should do a summer trip every year because that's what people do in the summer, right? Right travel uh, and have a little adventure. And then I suggested I really was dying to get to Indonesia and India, which were two countries that I had never been to. I was mostly a Latin American guy. So I, I put together this whole plan, brought it to my editor. And uh, I said, this is what I'm going to do. Six weeks here, six weeks there, blah, blah, blah. She kind of looked at me and said, eh, I think you're going to Scandinavia because as a <laughs> frugal traveler, it's not a really big challenge to travel in India. Sure. Nobody needed my help. In right. India to, to, to not spend that much money. And so then I went and Norway is of the Scandinavian countries, the most expensive. It's just a whole other experience. But I, I sort of had this theory that I, uh, that you could be in any major city and spend almost no money and still have a great time. Like any major city worth its salt has enough free stuff to do that you just need a bed in a, in a youth hostel or in a very, very cheap guest house or something like that. You need a little money for food, and then you can just eat, walk around, go to museums on the free day, uh, take advantage of free arts events, especially in the summer. And so that, that's basically how I would make that, that happen. How did I you say, do it, though, in Norway? Were you in Oslo? Hmm. I was in – well, I, I went to Oslo, and then I went – uh, well, oh, this is, okay. So in Oslo, I did what I called the $100 weekend, which is I, I sort of invented this uh, torturous um, <laughs> uh, game where I would try to spend $100 overall, including lodging in My a major goodness. city for a weekend. So in Oslo, it turns out there is a free campsite. Uh, on an island uh, in uh, just in the harbor, you take a ferry. I can't remember exactly what the name of it is, uh, but you go there and you can set up a tent and you can sleep there. And you take the, the ferry back, and you're in Oslo every morning. So I, that's how I save money on on a lodging. And then I, you know, ate cheap, walked around, looked at every site that said free things to do in Oslo. Uh, and then the one thing I remember I had to do is I, I heard there was a good cocktail scene there. So I saved something like $17 for the end and ended up having a fancy cocktail for $17. Luckily the tax <laughs> and tip were included. Oh my and, goodness. um, but I, I, let me just go back. I just want to say one thing about that, that budget, that yearly budget for, let's say it was $25,000. Actually by the end of the first year, uh, I added it up and I'd spent so much less than that amount, huh. uh, that we never did an annual budget again. So you were uh, the true was, frugal traveler. Yeah, That's I didn't impressive. even come close to spending a budget. Uh, wow. It turned out to be too much, I guess. 
We are speaking with Seth Kugel. For anybody tuning in late, he was the frugal traveler for the New York Times for several years. He also has a really terrific book of, of travel essays out called uh, Rediscovering Travel. And uh, Seth, I gotta ask, did you ever do couch surfing or, or globalfreeloaders.com? Is that one of the yes. ways that you cut your budget? How was that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was a couch surfing fan for a few years. Uh, I did. Um, Can you explain let's what it is for our listeners sure. who may not know? Well, couch surfing, if I'm not mistaken, now is no longer free. I think there's a membership fee. Oh. Uh, but back in the day, uh, it, I think that's quite recent, actually, that they, they changed that. But uh, back in the day, you'd sign up and you'd put your own apartment or your own couch in your own apartment, or sometimes people have spare rooms, uh, up for use. And people would sort of write to you and say, hey, I'm coming through town on this day. Uh, can I stay on your couch? And uh, it's kind of a community. And they, I know they don't like to say it's like free lodging because you have to participate in the community by making your apartment available. And then you create a good name for yourself on the network and right. you can go out and stay in other people's places. So, so I actually started by having a bunch of people stay in my place and it was super fun. Uh, had a, a, the best, best folks I had were these I had these Mexican, these two Mexican kids, they were like 18. And I was oh. like, what are you staying at a stranger, like a 40 year old stranger's house for <laughs> in the middle of nowhere? And they were super sweet. They were, they were women, which was even more shocking, but they oh. turned out to be the greatest travelers. And I guess they saw on my site, you know, he has a good reputation. He's not going to, you know, take you and sure. kidnap you and murder you. Uh, and they were fantastic and had a great time. Just they, they had a great attitude about travel. They're like, we don't want to, we're in Queens because that's where I live. We don't want to go to Manhattan. We don't, we want to see New York City. Like, tell us the inside scoop. And they were so much fun. And then I did it myself. I did it in Istanbul. Wow. Uh, Santiago was one. And Santiago, uh, I did another one of these $100 weekends. So I needed a free place to stay. And this sure. guy turned out to be a real heavy metal fan. <laughs> and I stayed on his couch, but he turned out he was having a party that night until like oh 4 a.m. So couch surfing sometimes has its downside. So I was at his party till till the couch became available at about oh 4 a.m. Wow. So, wow. But he was fun. It was, he was great. So... I I'm sorry, I got to look at the time. As as most of you would guess, we're not in our usual studio right now. And, and I'm looking at the time. We do have to take a break. Uh, but we will be back with more with Seth Kugel uh, talking about his book, Rediscovering Travel. And, and let me just talk about our books for right now. Uh, we're from the former guidebooks. Uh, we have them on sale. They're filled with information on history, on things you can do in nature, uh, on and, uh, culture and cuisine so we highly recommend picking one of those up or if you like go to fromers.com f-r-o-m-m-e-r-s.com that's our website we're very proud of it we write a lot of articles i personally write about two articles a day for that site about fascinating things that are happening all over the world so we hope you'll visit us during the week we'll be right back Hey, this is the Fromer Travel Show. We thank you so much for tuning in. Our guest for this hour, as I've said before, is Seth 
Kugel. He was the frugal traveler for many years. He also wrote a wonderful book of, of uh, travel essays called Rediscovering Travel. And one of the most poignant of your essays has to do with uh, the people you meet when you travel. Uh, am I right in saying that to you, that's the key to travel? It's less about the architectural sites you see or the nature sites you visit. It's, it's more about the personal connections you make. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has their own reasons for travel. Some people just absolutely love nature and, and some people love food. And I love meeting people and hearing about their lives. So absolutely, when I when I think about any trip, I noticed this when I was uh, at some point when I was frugal traveler, when I would think back to anywhere, uh, it wouldn't be a landscape or it wouldn't be a meal or whatever. it would always be someone's face that I would remember. Uh, the person who was the kindest to me or the person who opened my eyes to some sort of a different cultural difference or who uh, led me somewhere uh, or who spent a lot of time with me. So uh, for me, yeah, that's, that was always the, the most what important was, What part. was one of the most surprising non-touristic encounters you ever had? Huh. Um, well, I, I mean, I guess I just have to talk about the pistachio farmer in Turkey. Uh, there's there's so many people, but this is just such an extraordinary day where I was driving from one city to another, uh, uh, and I just realized I was driving through pistachio orchards, and I was like, well, I'm not going to go from one city to the other, but I was trying to find some people who grow pistachios, so I turned off the road and Follow how these could, signs can I just to, ask, how could you tell yeah. they were pistachio orchards? I don't think I would recognize uh, that. Yeah, well, it's because I actually had been in, uh, Gaziantep is a, a city known for its pistachio industry ah. and for its baklava with pistachios. And so I had gotten to figure out what a pistachio tree was being in the city. <laughs> and I had eaten right. a lot of pistachios. So, uh, and, and since I had been eating so many pistachios, then I saw these pistachio trees. They, they don't look unlike sort of olive trees. They're sort of these ancient looking trees. Hmm. And uh, and I just decided to drive off and just see what happened. And I ended up driving to this village. And actually, I drove through two villages and there was no people out, but it turned out people were at mosque. Uh, it was during prayers. And then I got to the third village and prayers were letting out. And just this guy is older than me, probably in his 60s, just sort of saw me get out of the car uh, and just walked up to me and without speaking any English, invited me over to his house for lunch. And it was a very, I recount the conversation in the, in the book. And, and when I say conversation, I really just mean, I spoke like four words of, of Turkish and those included like, uh, uh, tourist photograph <laughs> and yes, the yes, of course, came in very handy when sure. he invited me to lunch. And, uh, and you know, people always say, like, are you sure that was safe, blah, blah, blah. And you just have to know what kind of country you're in. Turkey is known for inviting people over. You know, uh. They're known for their very, very generous attitude towards guests and, and visitors. And, and I, I felt safe. Uh, I can't tell you exactly what made me feel safe about him. Uh, but um, um, maybe he said, come meet my wife or something mm. like that or and you just, I just, I've been traveling long enough that I think I know when something right. is safe, although sure. you're never a hundred percent sure. So I, I went over and just spent the whole afternoon with him and his, his enormous, enormous family, uh, his children and his grandchildren. And, uh, we talked about soccer players. That was pretty much the only thing we could talk about because I recognized <laughs> the names of the soccer players, right. but he also had a bunch of kids who were studying English and they ran and got their, their English notebooks and, and, 
started speaking to me in English, you know, but things that was, they weren't really capable. They had this whole thing. They knew how to say, I love you, but they thought it was just ma- meant like to like something. So they oh. would say like, Seth, Seth, I love you, Turkey. Like asking me <laughs> if I like Turkey. Do I like the food? Seth, I love you, food, whatever. And it was just very charming. And, and they, the funny thing, people always, also always ask, are you in any way exploiting these people? They're giving you free food. The one thing I noticed is that they were taking more pictures of me Hmm. than I was taking of them. Like this to them was a super fun afternoon. Did you bring, did you try and stop and bring a gift for them? Are you expected to do that? There was absolutely no time to get a gift. I was in a village with nothing to possibly buy. And I think that they weren't, they certainly realized that. Uh, So I got a good tour of the pistachio orchard too, which was my original plan. Yeah, how wonderful. For anybody tuning in late, we're speaking with Seth Kugel, who is uh, the author of a great book called Rediscovering Travel, something we all may be doing after this is over. Uh, And he was, for many years, the frugal traveler. Uh, We've got about a minute and a half before our next break. What is the key thing you need to do to travel cheaply, would you say? Is there one thing in a minute and a half you could tell us? Sure. Um, I think it is to know your limits and what you can tolerate and what you can't tolerate. So I'll just give an example. If if you do not, if you refuse to share a room with people you don't know, then when you're putting together your budget, don't try to stay in a youth hostel. You know, realize that traveling cheap for you does not include traveling that Uh, cheap. Very good. You know what, uh, Seth, I just realized I'm on the wrong. Uh, We have to take a break right now, but we'll be right back. You're listening to the Fromer Travel Show, and I, I interrupted our guest because I, I, not being in the studio, it's a little crazy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so Seth, what is the other thing? You said you have to know your limits to save money on travel, and what was the other tip you were going to give? Well, I mean, I was just going to sort of go on with that one and say, like, you have to figure out what you can stand saving money on and what you can't. So if you have a, uh, if your stomach is sensitive, you're not going to save your money just by eating street food all day. You know, right. on the other hand, if you like street food, that's the way to save the money and spend your money somewhere else. So it's really uh, making your cheap travels tolerable. There's a sort of thing out there where uh, uh, people, especially younger people, like to sort of one up each other about how cheap they've been in their travels. And <laughs> I just and, and yes, of course, uh, you have to stay within whatever budget you have. But if you are traveling, you're already a bit of a privileged person. I think we sure. should stop pretending that you're not. Uh, if you really didn't have any money, you'd be home working at McDonald's or something like that. So, um, you know, don't go crazy. I don't know. I, I remember staying in a nice uh, sort of a, a hotel, actually, for like nine dollars a night in Bolivia and meeting these guys who were in a youth hostel for like seven dollars a night. And I was like, guys, just move to my hotel. And I'm like, oh, I can't spend an extra two dollars. You know, and I was just like, come on. Right, so and nice you were the frugal there. traveler. Yeah, you had the right to say that. Nine dollars. Well, that's the point. Nine dollars is a great deal for yeah, a hotel. Absolutely, absolutely. So, 
we've been in a time of global pause. Nobody has been traveling. Before this time, we all had an understanding that climate change was on the horizon and could definitely shift how we travel in the future. We've got about two minutes left. How do you hope we come out of this global pause and, and travel again? What do you hope that will look like? Well, uh, one thing I would certainly hope for, of course, travel is not just leisure travel. I think that there was already a move towards when there are professional uh, conferences and things like that, that you do a lot of it over Zoom or whatever sure. app you're going to use. And I think we could certainly reduce a huge amount of business. In fact, I think we will. I think now there will be much less business travel because people really have been forced to realize they can get along without it. Sure. And what I hope is that people will use whatever uh, sort of carbon uh, emissions they, they have in their own personal bank for really special trips for leisure travel and that will reduce other kinds of travel because, uh, you know, one trip a year, I think, uh, we can make the world work with one nice trip a year if we can reduce our travel in, in other ways that maybe aren't as necessary anymore. Or maybe more than one trip a year, but using trains well, or greener or forms using, well, of right, transportation. Of I, I, right. Plane, one plane trip a year or two if you have to see your mother on Thanksgiving. Sure, sure. Well, we have been speaking with Seth Kugel of The Frugal Traveler for years ago on the, at the New York Times and also the author of Rediscovering Travel. We thank you so much for listening. If you're traveling, a hearty bon voyage. Bon voyage.